Being disabled or having a chronic illness can feel like you're moving forward in reverse. I'm your host, Scott Martin. Join me and my new friends from this underrepresented community as we talk about disrupting the status quo and creating change within the world and within ourselves. Hey, life's a road trip. Hop in. Let's turn on some tunes and go. With me in the passenger seat and managing the radio for this road trip is Jordan Roman. Jordan is a writer and director of films that explore the deeper connections and bonds that emotional openness and honesty can bring us as people trying to navigate the world in search of ourselves and our connections to others. His films often explore these themes in dramatic context. Now, I was introduced to Jordan's work after stumbling onto a short film that we'll be digging into today. It's called Cuddle Buddies. Both Jordan and I paused about how the film related to the disability community, but then it dawned on me that not only does society avoid discussing disability, it, and therefore we, look away from the need for human touch. So, hi, Jordan. Hey, Scott. How's it going? Pleasure to to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. I, I am so much looking forward to doing this show with you. Uh, just as a matter of fact, I was having a rough day yesterday with trying to juggle so many things that were going on school years over and, but I'm still have a lot of other things going on. And I was just kind of bummed and I went back and I scheduled yesterday for going back and watching cuddle buddies again. And later my wife asked me, so how are you doing? I said, well, I'm doing better. And she asked me what did it? I said, you know, I think watching that movie (laughs) kind of helped me, uh, get through it. So you had an impact on me, Matt. So I, I, Appreciate it for what your wow, work. So. Thank you for for saying that. I mean, honestly, the you always hope that for one as a as a filmmaker that that someone will watch your projects. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and the second thing you hope is that they can feel something from it, and and whether that's mm-hmm. just it helps uh, ch- change their mood into being in a better mood, or maybe they're just feeling more in touch with their emotions, or even just their fellow people. I mean, that was I think one of my biggest goals with this film was can I create something on screen that just makes you want to connect even that much more with your, your partner, your friends, your, you know, your father, your mother, like anyone else in your life. Um, you just want to kind of almost hold them that much closer, so to speak, you know, based off the subject matter. Sue and I talked about it. You know, we want to be getting into actually doing this more. We do take time for ourselves together as a couple and just kicking listen to some tunes or last night we got back from a uh, uh, music fest in, in our small little town here in central Wisconsin. And, and we decided instead of just doing anything major, turning on a tube, we went outside and just sat and listened to the birds and things. And it was, wow. I so love that. You are having an impact here, buddy. Thank so, you. Thank now, you so much. I love that. I, w- I want to mention, I want to really get into something that, that triggers. And a lot of times when I'm doing the show, I tend to find threads that, weave through people's stories and how they got to where they're at. I couldn't find a freaking thread on you, man, because it starts out with, (laughs) you've got a bachelor of arts in cinema from Elon university, Mm -hmm. but I've got one question for you, Jordan. Mm -hmm. How the heck did a kid from Colorado Springs get into film? (laughs) It's a, it's a really great question. I think, uh, honestly, I think a lot of it came 
back to my early early days as a as a young boy my my grandfather on my mom's side when we would go visit because he lives on the east coast he was a huge lover of the old classics of cinema so you know casablanca um the mm-hmm. sting butch cassidy hoosiers i mean he was a huge fan of robert redford and paul newman and kind of that era of filmmaking okay. I think um, subconsciously just from watching films with him and watching them with our family, because we would all sit around and watch it together. I think mm-hmm. I just had a lot of great memories of films bringing people together, even from that age. And then I think as I was kind of moving my way through high school, I started to find filmmaking as a way to connect with my friends because we would do it for fun. And we have we would have so much fun doing these silly YouTube sketches that weren't serious. Okay. After doing a number of those and having and realizing that it was never felt like work, but it was just a way to connect with my friends, make things that were fun and still have an end product to show people when we were done, because you could always just go on YouTube and watch it. It always felt like such a great way to quantify the work that was done in a way that sometimes you you don't get to in other industries. But I think it it all came back to I was always having fun with people I cared about in the process of making projects. And then as I got more serious about it, and I started realizing, I love to do this so much so that it almost feels obsessive. And I, I, I spend every waking hour thinking about what is the next thing I want to do? How can I scale up? How can I make bigger projects that are more impactful than these kind of silly sketches? And I think late in high school, I did this, um, this, this noir film, this neo-noir film that was inspired by this movie called Brick. And I did it with a high school friend and it turned out better than any of us had ever, you know, envisioned. And I, and I think that was what really set it off for me was seeing just the kind of response to that and seeing, I think I have a future in this in some capacity. You know, I think that that's where it all sort of started from and kind of photographing Colorado Springs and, you know, the mountains, the, oh, yeah. the beauty that it had in my hometown, um, you know, in Colorado Springs that to me very much became an interesting thing about, you know, capturing the scenery around you in a way and making that its own character and celebrating it. But also, again, just spending time with people I cared about. So I think that's really where the the catalyst for it all came from. I've got to go dig that one up because I'm a, I'm big in a noir. 40s, <laughs> 50s era noir. I, I, I just it's, love it. It's, man. it's a little, a little rough, you know, of being yeah. looking back now, of course, we're always critical of, earlier work, but I, it really was the thing that I think set me on this path and made me feel like I could do this in a real way down the line. So, but I can, I can send you the link. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What was video real 2013? Oh, okay. So I think that was honestly one of my very first demo reels, you know, how it it seemed like it. Yeah. Yeah. But it was funny. (laughs) You look back, but it was good. Yeah. I mean, it's your (laughs) beginnings. That's when you were really testing the waters and you were probably getting bitten by the, uh, by the bug. Absolutely. I think it, yeah, that was really a lot of the projects that are on there. Cause we had to, we actually had to cut a demo reel for practice in one of my video classes in high school. And thankfully we had a really great video teacher who really kind of taught us to edit, taught us to make projects and really pushed us to, to make things and learn by doing. And so I think for, for, for me, a lot of the projects you see on that reel in particular were made with the same mm-hmm. friend that I made the trace, which was the neo-noir film I was talking about. Okay. Uh, we made that together and, and we were experimenting with just action, different camera angles, you know, a little bit of visual effects, very early stages of it. But I think it was 
me figuring out, finding the voice, trying to figure out what are what are things that are interesting and how do how do you do this in a more professional manner, you know? So so far, where you are today, and that's a young filmmaker, mm-hmm. has it turned out to be what you thought it would be when you started really going down this road? Honestly, uh no, I, I don't think so. I think um the biggest surprises so far have really been since I graduated from Elon and I moved to LA about seven years ago, I I really think it's continued to be way more of a challenge and way harder, I think, in a lot of ways than I ever envisioned when I first set out on this career path. And I think my initial conception of what it was going to be was more, hey, you go out, you get people, you shoot something, and then you go out (laughs) and then everybody sees it and you're great. And then you do the next one. And it couldn't be further from the truth. I think a lot more of it is you you have to fight for every single project and and you have to mm-hmm. even get innovative with how you find funding especially for independent shorts that are not necessarily going to have a distribution platform in the way that a, a feature film or a television show would so i think you really then have to figure out how do i get this money maybe i invest some of it um, of my own money into it i've done that plenty of times and yeah. you kind of start realizing this is uh this is a lot more expensive but it also each one is harder than you think. But but I think what it, it really taught me was that, okay, if I'm going to sign up and do this and call myself a filmmaker, I need to step up too. And I just need to uh, mm-hmm. sign up for that challenge. And I have to really put myself in the shoes of, of what these other filmmakers have done and just, um, I think, rise to the occasion. And I think that's that's been my biggest goal is just don't don't let it, you know, all the hardships of it, still make sure that you're making time to to be a director and be a writer even as I'm making money doing other other gigs you know so i mm-hmm. think the challenges were definitely a lot different than i thought and nobody you know nobody in my family went into film so in some ways it was sort of an ignorance is bliss entering the industry <laughs> kind of deal but also i think um nobody was able to fully prime me and say hey it's it's i mean people said oh it's going to be hard but you never really know to get there but Thankfully, I, I'm too far in, I think, at this point to go oh, back. No way you're get, No, with <laughs> once we get in and start talking about Cuddle Buddies, and I, I want to mention, folks, <laughs> throw it out there. Link to Cuddle Buddies is on the Life's a Road Trip website or, or wherever you're going to be listening to this. At any time, folks, feel free to pause this show and go watch it and then come back to this and, you know, whichever way you want to do it. But you've got, you've got to see it. But Thank so- you. You just went into something. I I have a feeling it might be one of the. I was going to ask you the question. Name one or two things that make making a film difficult. And, and I listed all right, money. You already talked about actors yeah. securing a location or set. And what are a couple of things aside from money that just mm-hmm. pop in your head? Of, oh God, what a pain in the ass. Yeah, I think it, a lot of it too, especially as a as a director. And if you're a writer director, you're you're someone who's who's seen that project from its very early conception through to the very end. And and especially when you're that close to the material, you you care. You care probably more than anyone else. And so I think the one of the hard parts um, that I've found is sometimes, you know, because film is such a collaborative art form. You yeah. really do have to work with crew members, other people, and 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 that is a great thing. And sometimes I think you really just have to be very, very specific and and particular about protecting that vision because when you bring in more people, inevitably there's going to be more voices in the room, especially when you get into kind of larger scale filmmaking when you have studios, execs, 
other people, you know, that have stake in the game, they're going to mm-hmm. have an opinion. And so I think to the mm-hmm. best degree that you can as sort of the author and, uh, you know, the harbinger of that, that story and that vision, I think you have to do everything in your power to protect, you know, the integrity of the story, the narrative. And, and really sometimes that means fighting for, for decisions that people are trying to change, but you know, deep down, it has to be this very specific way down to the angle needs to be this angle, not that angle. And there's a reason for it. So I think really fighting to protect the vision and being as crystal clear as possible with a lot of different people. That was one of the things I I had to learn how to do and how to be comfortable doing, especially if you're disagreeing or you're having to dissent from what maybe the the common wisdom of of how you'd shoot something is. Sometimes you got to say, well, I know we're shooting it different, but there's a reasoning, there's a method to the madness. and And I have to be confident enough to convey that to all these people who are telling me that, that we shouldn't do it that way. So that that's the biggest one. I think it's just amazing to me how you, professional you are with this and you have the total picture of things. You just seem older for your years. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's just now I've read that you're working at Netflix as a story, uh, an editorial coordinator in the animated features department. Tell mm-hmm. us about some of the stuff behind Netflix. I mean, you might not be able to give some stuff away and everybody knows about Netflix. So tell us about that, that position. Yeah, it's been, it's been really great. Cause I, I've always really had a background in live action production, um, especially the last mostly, you know, five or so years since I've been in LA. And so right around the, the time of the pandemic, I had a, a friend who had helped me get the job working in animation at, at Netflix. And cool. and really, it was my first time working on, I worked on a first uh, animated series, and then I rolled over to this current movie that I'm working on called Thelma the Unicorn. And so really, I think the, the big thing for me was this was my first time working in animation and learning what the pipeline uh, looks like, because it's a very different production process than live action and you know in animation you're, you're not going to any set to roll a camera capture footage okay. all of that is being created from the ground up you know so i think a lot of it was was me learning what does that pipeline look like but you know this this the very important aspects of character and story still come first as far as being the most important things that the audience is going to engage with and really the metric of is that a good story that's worth following. And so I think in a lot of ways, live action, whether it be series features or animated series or features, a lot of the same principles apply. It's it's sort of just a difference of how did you get from point A to point B as far as the the technical elements of assembling that that project. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's been really great. I think the things that I've really learned um, at Netflix are just for one, how to how to take better notes, you know, as a note taker, oftentimes, a lot of my daily tasks involve taking notes in an edit review and, and really dialing into what is the action item here. And sometimes you have to sift through the parlance of, of shorthand, and, and they'll, they won't even say shots or shot numbers. And you have to just be really clued into which shot are they talking about? Which which character are they talking about? Which line of dialogue is this affecting? And so it's really taught me to be extremely perceptive. And, and I think even just in my own personal meetings or when I'm, when I'm going through the world now, I try to be more engaged with what is every single element of that thing that I can take from it or even take a note of, 
you know, so I think it's helped in that way. And it's really helped me too, just with learning the editorial organizational process for how to mm-hmm. run and, and maintain a really organized edit department and down to how do you label files properly so that it's easy to find at, at, a, at a moment's notice. And that I've actually incorporated a lot of those those workflows into my own personal projects. And sometimes I'm editing those projects in addition to directing them. So it's really helped me kind of learn how does a professional department run in that way? And how do I, how can I apply that and just be more aware of how does, how does an editor work and how does, how does an editor and, you know, their team work and how do they work with their assistants down to, you know, the, the lowest level person to the highest level person. So, yeah, I think it's been a really wonderful learning experience working there. And, and, you know, I, I will say too, um, just, just to be totally transparent about the last couple of years at the company with the stock kind of having an interesting, oh, yeah. you know, situation, yep. I'm, I'm grateful to say that I, I've kind of made it through, um, some of those layoff rounds and, and I, I feel like we're in a pretty good place, um, as a company, you know, <laughs> not being any official spokesperson for the company, but it's. Yeah, it's been I, I really think it's been a great place to to learn and to work and to still have a chance to be working on a movie, which is all I've ever really wanted to do since high school is is really um it's a blessing, you know. You know, what you were just talking about everything that you've been learning and all the aspects of how uh things fit together. It took me back to when I was a freshman in college, I took a class on film and film history. And right there it it goes back to uh, the pre-talky era, you know, the silent era on how films are made. That that the professor had us learning exactly the same stuff that you're talking about. So what you're doing now goes back more than a hundred years, mm-hmm. and and yep. you're following those <laughs> same people. I mean, maybe you know it or not, but it it takes me back to that professor talking about things. Now, yeah. also what you were getting into, Jordan, it made me think about the the saying that I really learned as I've gotten older, uh, it's not what you know, but who, you know, are you <laughs> finding that true in the film industry? I, I really think so. Um, I, I think, um, I, I am a firm believer in, in just the, the craft and the artistry. I think as you're going through your journey, there's always, it's, it's necessary to continue to learn and, and, um, experiment and, and, and really just kind of hone that artistry and, and you're always trying to get better, but, but, but I really do believe that sometimes those, those, those people, you know, in your network, those, that connection you might make, uh, at a restaurant or a bar, especially living in Los Angeles mm-hmm. is it can be that pivotal thing that takes your art from being seen to possibly not being seen, you know? And I think it, it really is true. I, I think it's true. And I think wow. there's very much ways to go about that more genuinely. And some people aren't quite as genuine about how they go about networking oh, or connecting I'm with sure. people, you know, especially in LA. But, but I think I've learned um, because that is a part of the process and, and because oftentimes you do have to work and, and rely on other people to help go to bat for your project as an artist. You know, you have people like agents, managers, salespeople, financiers. I mean, we, we need those 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 people to help us get our projects not only made but seen in a greater capacity yeah. you know so it's it's i always say filmmaking is two two battles the first one is making the project the second is getting it seen you know and and mm-hmm. getting it 
distributed and getting it um, exhibited and in in the right place for it to have a chance to be successful. So, so really sometimes the harder battle, people might be shocked to hear this. The harder battle is getting it seen. You know what I mean? Um, They're both very hard battles, but, but I think I've learned that that component of the equation does come down to oftentimes the networking and the people that, you know, who can, who can help go to bat and believe in the project. And that's oftentimes what you are doing when you're not making films, you're either Mm -hmm. prepping the next one, or you're trying to advocate for yourself to get somebody to take a chance on you as an artist or a filmmaker. So a lot of times I'm honestly spending time doing that (laughs) just to try to get my work seen in a greater scale. Yeah. It seems like you're a a learner through, uh, doing and through process and of course yeah. making mistakes screwing up and then oh okay I'll, I'll i'll change that and learn from it have Absolutely. you been an intern yeah. have you been officially an intern at any time i have yeah so i i've done uh two two internships one of them when i when i was in elon still in school i did a whole semester in la when i was okay. a sophomore so that would have been 2013 and I worked at this company called Young Hollywood, which was sort of a celebrity and entertainment news source. And it it was actually really great because I met a lot of people there that I still keep in touch with that are really great people. Right. It did kind of teach me some some very basics of production too, and just how how a company operates, you know, in the real world. And they they did treat me really well um, during that internship. Um, the other one I did, this one's actually really interesting because it's really not film centric at all, but I, I had a chance to intern at the NASA Langley research center in Hampton, Virginia for a summer between my junior and senior years of college. And it was really one of the greatest experiences I I had because I got to, I got to intern and, and help edit and shoot a lot of science videos for, for the different topics that they were, they were covering and they were trying to use to help as educational tools on that site. And so it was cool because I got to learn these, these science and, you know, aeronautical concepts as we were shooting and editing the videos. And I was working with a lot of other people who were in production and kind of knew that, but I also was living and getting to know a lot of other interns in the program who were in completely different. I mean, I'm talking aerospace engineer caliber, brilliant people. And I'm, I'm over here doing film and I'm kind of going, Wow, I don't know if I should be here, but it, it was really a great way to learn. And and honestly, some of my best friends that I still keep in touch with, uh, I met through that program. And it's it's so great because we we couldn't be more different in what we're doing. But it's really great that now I have this network of people who are not in the film industry who they really they think what I do is cool. I think what they do is really cool. So yeah, I think um those two internships, specifically that NASA one was such a great experience uh that i'm so glad i did that really was not hollywood la centric it was very far from that and i think it was really important for me to do that Mm -hmm. now i've got to ask you one question just before we start getting into talking about cuddle therapy and cuddle buddies (laughs) yeah it seems that anytime you hear about an actor or someone that's in film and television has at some time while they're climbing the ladder worked in a restaurant or bar. <laughs> have you, Jordan Ryan, uh, worked in a restaurant or bar? I actually haven't. It's funny. I, I feel like I am one of the few people I know who hasn't. I haven't ever worked at a at a restaurant or bar in my 
time in LA. The the only time I did work at a bar was was back in high school. My my dad actually owns a sports bar in Colorado. Oh, cool. And, and I worked there a couple summers in between my high school years. Um, so I guess I had some a little bit of early bar experience working in the kitchen. But as far as being in LA, I I haven't. But most of my friends, oh, yeah. especially who are who are actors, um, have either serving jobs, bartending jobs, or you know have mm-hmm. worked at restaurants. Um, so yeah, I've I've I'm very grateful to say that every single job I've ever had in LA that has paid is has been entertainment in some nature, um, whether it be a freelance position or full time something like I am at Netflix now. So I've yeah, I'm really grateful just a lot of people that care about me and have helped me, you know, navigate the waters and get me positions. That is is a lot of what's led to just me being able to work in the entertainment field the entire time. Uh, for well, better or for worse. <laughs> there's something later on in the show I want to bring up that it's not just you receiving from people, but there's something that I read from you that uh, I would categorize as you're paying it forward for others. And I applaud that, but we'll get to it. But awesome. right now I want to get into cuddle therapy. And, and here's something I, I Googled up. Uh, professional cuddling is a form of therapy that combine, combines platonic touch and companionship. This unique therapy is more than just hugs. A cuddle therapist must listen, acknowledge, and soothe a client using sensory and communicative skills. The word that I highlighted and bolded is platonic. And mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. seems to be, uh, it was a stickler for me because I just think, cuddle, oh boy, how the heck does this yeah. work? So, right. <laughs> And, yeah. and there's going to be a link to stuff like this again on, on life's a road trip website for people. I mean, they should just go out and explore it themselves anyway. Cause it's, it's extremely interesting. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. I also read that cuddle therapy can be done by zoom and there was a boom during the pandemic because of, uh, you know, our, most of us have lost our, our sense of touch and, and being with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What drew you to this topic? I really think it was it was when I first read this this article about the world's most bizarre professions. That's where I, I found out about it. I was I was just okay. researching. I came across this article on on Google and and it was ranking them and up there toward the very top was professional cuddling and it had a very kind of brief description about, you know, what it is and and that people do it for a living and people hire cuddlers as clients and and all of the creative bells and whistles kind of went off in my head as soon as I read that because I just I I found myself thinking that is so out there I mean it is so wild that that people would would do this and and then I started thinking who would do this and then I started thinking who would hire a cuddler and I think because of the onslaught of questions that that immediately popped up into my head I just started kind of formulating all of these disparate thoughts, but they all felt like interesting, dramatic questions to ask and to hmm. contextualize on screen in in a in a film capacity. And and as a as a writer, I mean, you t- talk about like divine inspiration or however you would call it. It it that almost felt like something that I would describe as that because it it immediately just went. My writer brain went. This is, I've never, I also, the other thing I liked about it was it, it, like you said, it was so unique. It was so novel to me. 
I'd never seen or heard anything about this work before in any other medium. And I have to admit that was something that really, really attracted me to the idea was that I had never seen this put on film. I had never seen this really even covered. And Mm -hmm. I, I sort of wanted to be one of the first to hopefully do it in a, in a, in a real narrative capacity. So I think it was a lot of those things, but it, but it also scared me. And I think that was the other component of it that really led me to committing to do it was I admit I was a little bit uh, judgmental of, of the profession. And I was wondering, is it something else? Is it, you know, I think I had all these preconceived thoughts about it. And I, and I think that my, my own personal bias was thinking, Oh, well, I wouldn't do that. You know, I think I, I really thought that, at the time. And, and the more I thought about it, I went, this, this sounds a little bit, this sounds wild enough that I, I actually think I need to do it because I think it's going to really be an important metric of growth for, for me as an artist, as a person and, and somebody just trying to overcome their own preconceived judgments about a thing and, and really force myself to open my mind and, and just jump in and try it. And, and I, you know, the, when I first started telling friends and family that I was going to pursue a film about this date, they all thought I was insane, you know, and the way they looked at me, then they had crap questions about it. And they, you know, and, and at the time, honestly, I hadn't done the full scale of the research. So I, I didn't really even know myself, but, but I really think it was the combo of the, a little bit of the fear and the, the unique element of it. But also I really did see a dramatic possibility there because of the fact that, people were paying to be touched because there clearly was such a lack thereof in their life. What did that say about our society, you know, and what did it say about our need for touch, even though sometimes platonic touch can be so uncomfortable or taboo, I think in our culture in America. So I think it, it very much was me trying to seek to explore and understand that, that need and that, fear of intimacy and vulnerability because I think sometimes I recognize that, that own fear in myself. So I think in a way it was sort of me trying to explore deeper parts about myself, but really to learn more about this work and and honestly help people learn about this work too, especially the further I got into the research, it felt like maybe I can be in a position to educate other people and really put this position and this work in a, in a positive light, especially for the people who could use this as a viable form of therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just not, no, it, I was the same way as what the heck is this? And it, and it <laughs> yeah. obviously the first thing it does is opens our doors in our mind about sexuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you mm-hmm. come across in any of your studies, any male professional cuddlers? I did actually. Yeah. The the coolest thing was uh, a lot of the research I did and even some of the, the cuddlers that I spoke and worked with and, and talked to, they were either new male cuddlers or they had had some on staff. And okay. it was really cool to see that there is a lot of different people who do this work, you know, men, women, even um, non-binary people uh, who do this work. And, and it was really cool to see that it's not just women. I think sometimes people thought when I talked to them about the, the project, I think most people assumed it was 
only women doing it or predominantly. And I, I do still think there's probably a higher number of women who do it, but there's a lot of people of all backgrounds who do it and, and their reasons for getting into it were always so fascinating to me too. You know, while you're talking about this, my mind is drifting off and thinking back to, so I, I, uh, came down with group A strep necrotizing fasciitis, uh, the flesh eating disease. And, and I woke oh up gosh. after a month uh, in a coma and found out I, lo- I had both hands and parts of both feet amputated. And that was in the wow. hospital for four more months. And I came out as a male work, work, work. I, I was, yeah. I was running a, a nationally ranked soccer program at the collegiate level. And that's what I focused wow. on. Yeah. And thinking back, that probably would have helped me a whole heck of a lot. Because I avoided it. I wasn't in a relationship at the time anyway. No way in hell was I going to get into one. So that I I hope people that are in the disabled community, and that's probably at least 95% of the listeners, could Mm -hmm. consider this because of of what we as a group go through. But heck, anyone, our society, man, Mm -hmm. we put blocks up on things. We just don't do it enough. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think sometimes it, it really, it, it does come down to just overcoming that, that initial fear of, of whether it be the, the awkwardness or the just uncomfortability, or sometimes I, I do know people, people grow up in such various different types of households and with different relationships to yeah. touch from their own family members growing up. And so I, I do think that there, it, there sometimes is a little bit of that initial hurdle but it's what I found was so fascinating is when I, I did a session with, uh, with a woman who, who we can talk more about too, yeah, who okay. named Jean, who ended up becoming our, our onset um, intimacy coordinator, but also um, the consultant for the film to really make sure that this work was shown and depicted, depicted accurately. And, and I really welcomed that and wanted that just to really make sure that I was doing justice to this community. And it was so fascinating that when I did my session, just for my own anecdote, when I was driving over there and I, you know, again, I told friends and family, I'm, I'm going to do a session with a total stranger. I, I, we had a phone call and they, they initially give you all the details of the phone call of what to expect um, before and they, they sort of pre-screen you make sure you know what it is and what it's not. And, but you know, there's still nothing like when you're going over there for a first session and that those first couple minutes are very, they can be very nerve wracking as a first time client. Uh, cause you just don't know what to expect. And within, within 10 or 15 minutes, especially once we got into the first cuddle position and they all have such interesting, fun names. And there's so many different <laughs> types of cuddle positions. It's, it's so, it's so fun. And, and, and I love that they, they really have fun with it, but I felt so taken care of by Jean. And, and again, that word that you mentioned in the description of cuddling soothe, I think it's such okay. a great part of the description because that is what it's supposed to do is, is it's completely consensual too. And, and that's one thing that they, they really stress is, they never initiate any touch, any position, anything, unless you give the verbal okay. And they ask, they check in with you every step of the way. And so the great part is you feel so taken care of and heard and respected that you're making decisions based off your, your own accord, you know? And I think for me, after the first 10, 15 minutes, I really 
physiologically, my body just really softened and relaxed and any sort of the initial nerves really went out the window. And so I think it really is just that initial hurdle. And a lot of that is just honestly, just preconceived notions, I think. And if you can get to those, the whole rest of that session and your body and mind are, 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 are going to thank you for it later because it really does make you feel that, you know, lack of stress, that, that connection, that real relaxation. And, and I remember feeling just so relaxed and, and honestly, I felt so at peace on the way home. I slept, I slept great that night. I remember. <laughs> so I think there really are these, these scientific health benefits that genuinely do come from platonic and, and physical connection with another person. Yeah. And you touch on some of the aspects of misinterpretation in the film, but we'll get to it for a second. I want to, I want to start with um, looking at some of the, the credits and it's, you're listed as the writer, producer, uh, director, and editor. Dude, mm-hmm. you did a lot. Um, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Gregory Roman is executive yeah. producer. Is that brother? Uh, that's my father. So yeah, he okay, cool. He helped a little bit with our. We had a crowdsource campaign to raise the funds to cool. have a budget. So he okay. he very graciously offered up um, a, a small portion of that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, nice. So. Now the film is a little bit over fifteen minutes long, so it's considered in the shorts category. It stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, Caitlin Clare, great actor. Thank uh, you. Yeah. It, she's a wonderful. It's also lists in loving memory of Jack Armistead. Who is this? Yeah. So actually my my grandfather um on my my mom's side, you know, he actually was one um he was the one who what's I'm really glad you're bringing that up because, you know, earlier we were talking about um, you know, what what was one of my first initial ways that I got into loving cinema and it was watching okay. it with Jack Armistead, my, my yeah. grandfather, because he was the one okay. who loved, you know, Hoosiers and the Sting and Robert Redford and Paul Newman. So, you know, I'm, I'm in such a nice way. I'm glad you brought that around because he he passed away. Unfortunately, um, he got to see the film, which was amazing. Um, oh, he passed away in at the end of 2020. So okay. that very much when we were finishing post, it felt okay. appropriate to, you know, to pay tribute to him for my initial reason that I'm doing this probably in the first place. Yeah, you have to. It's listed as an ominous entertainment and cabin one entertainment production. Mm -hmm. What's, what, what's the terminology there? What's, what's the meaning? Good question. So my, I have my own little uh, production company banner called ominous entertainment. And that's, that's what I started making a lot of my projects under um, within the last couple of years. And then um, my other producer named AJ Vargas, his he has his own company too called Cabin One. So at the end of it all, we sort of, you know, it was very much kind of a co-production in a way of both mm-hmm. of us and our sort of our resources coming together to, to make it possible and, and even supplying a little bit of funds from both sides too. So okay. yeah, but I think it really was the sharing of the resources that was helpful because I supplied a certain amount of crew and people he supplied certain crew and, and, you know, sometimes you're often just sourcing what's a good person in this role. Great. Okay. What about mm-hmm. this role? And so, you know, oftentimes it's, you rotate and just bring those, the same people back a lot, you know, you get to know women going, I, I, yeah. I, I can't state it strongly enough 
folks need to, again, even while you're listening, to, pause this show, go watch it. You may end up wanting to watch it again. It's so <laughs> well you. done. Now, Thank you. I'm going to get right to the opening scene. Uh, yeah. Jordan, you've got, it's sexual in nature because you have Lucy, who's the main character, under a sheet with a woman. Is that a client? That is a client. Yeah. And so, okay. you know, one, one thing that you're completely right, I think for the sake of um, the dramatic purposes, the one of the initial things that I wanted was I, I wanted it not to be too sexual in nature, but I, I wanted there to be a question for the audience at first to, to ask when they're first seeing Good. this, is this a relationship or is this, you know, is this, who is this, who, what is this relationship? Right. And I think at the very start, if you don't know what the film's about it, it, you could think, oh, well, they're in a, in a, in a relationship. And, and I think we did that sort of just as a misdirect in the writing phase so that you come back around and you go, oh, okay, wait, that, if you yep. think back to it, you kind of realize, oh, that actually is a client. And that, that is a client that she feels very comfortable with. And that is a repeat client. And that's very much the, the, the dialogue you'd have where it's like, you know, you would say with a repeat client, you kind of already know what, what cuddle positions they kind of like, and you're more comfortable. So the way they're interacting versus when you see Lucy interacting later in the film with Jeffrey and Fiona, mm -hmm. because they're first time clients is vastly different. So I think that was one thing I also wanted to show in contrast, but also throw you in with, in, and have you ask the questions first, you know? Well, it educated me because of course it grabbed me, but I also, when I went and watched it the second time, of course, you know, the objective changes, but mm -hmm. during the, the, the entire movie, it comes up early and then, and you scatter it nicely. Lucy's going through so much turmoil in her life. But yeah. she needs the cat. You know, this is one of the things I wanted to get into with you. She needs a cast set aside for her clients. Did yeah. you learn how professional cuddlers deal with spending so much energy or exuding so much energy of their own that they might be spent as well? And look at Lucy's situation with her husband, who thinks that she's a sex worker. Right. Yeah, I think it, I, I did. And just from a lot of my conversations with Gene, who was our um, on set cuddle coordinator and, and intimacy coordinator. Um, you know, a, really a lot of what she explained to me was that she, she actually does get a boost from having clients and, and helping soothe them and, and really being, being of help, um, okay. you know, to them. But she even said, sometimes you, as a cuddler, you, you either do a session as a client with, with a different cuddler, or sometimes you do have to build into the way you schedule Sometimes you do have to build in um, those those recharge times so you actually can recharge and in the mm -hmm. same way that you know after being social for a long time you might need to kind of recoup before you reemerge. It's it's sort of a similar idea from what you know she described to me. Um, so I think there is that component because sometimes it does take it does take a lot out of you and and I think the other thing I I thought was interesting about the narrative structure for this film was because Lucy does have a lot of this extraneous drama that's happening parallel to mm -hmm. her professional life. Uh, I, I wanted to show that sometimes it can take a toll and you, you still have to find ways to bring that, that energy um, for your clients. And, and um, you know, in the, this might be teasing ahead, but in the feature script version, which I just finished writing the feature script for, we actually 
do get to see a little more of Lucy when she's going through the process of the divorce, that it 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 is slightly affecting her work because she's so drained. She almost doesn't have quite the same amount to give and how painful that is for her to even realize that too, you know, with yeah. clients where she's not a hundred percent there. So that's something very much in the future I wanted to kind of uh, examine more because you, you're totally right. I think it, it's, it does take a toll sometimes just from the amount of giving that you're doing, you know, as a cuddler to the client. Mm-hmm. So in the production of the film and, and some of the, your touches, man, it just, so you do, you use snippets from different sessions and weave them through the cuddlers, her personal struggles. So you've got one scene where it seems that the husband and wife, Lucy and her husband are going to be splitting. It seems like uh, you use single shots on each of them and they both seem to be, they're fading away. So that's mm. them, their mm-hmm. relationship fading away and, and how you had uh, the snippets and using their personal camera for when things were good with them <laughs> and their daughter and the, and the playfulness. So mm-hmm. you're bringing all of that stuff and you're weaving all of that stuff together and using different techniques. I got Thank it. You. And I, I think you did a, an amazing job because it, in such a short film, you use so many different techniques, but you blended them together extremely well. That gave us Thank a you. sense of Lucy's persona and her ups and downs. She enjoys mm-hmm. her job, but then yeah. the husband says that she's Thank a sex you. worker. I, I just really enjoyed doing it. One more thing I wanted to mention because I just finished up uh, season two of um, Perry Mason on HBO and I was oh, watching nice. it with Sue and I kept saying, I referred back to cuddle buddies. I said, he uses the same sort of lighting that they're <laughs> using in Perry Mason. No, you are. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, they're a little bit more noir ask, but mm-hmm. I noticed the same sense and use of light that made me feel comfortable. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It was, it was, it was really awesome because our cinematographer, his name's uh, Brennan Miller. We, we had actually met uh, when I, I used to work at the Panavision Hollywood camera rental house. Oh, cool. Yeah. And it was really great because I actually got uh, as a director, I got really familiar with the cameras, the accessories, the lenses and and why you would use yep. this lens series versus this lens series. And, and what was really great was one of the perks of working there was we got a certain amount of free camera packages as an employee perk. Oh, and nice. what was really great was one of our camera assistants used, um, you know, one of hers. And so we had these incredible Panavision lenses, which I think really helped add to just the production value, the close-ups, the the level of detail in in the close-ups because there's there are a lot of close-ups in this film, mm-hmm. and and for the purposes of really showcasing that intimacy. Uh, but really, I think the Brennan's lighting and then the use of the Alexa Classic, uh, we shot at 2K resolution. I think really just with that combo of of good lighting with good locations that help support some of the natural daylight. And really just kind of selling this warm feeling. And that was, I'm glad that, you know, you said that too, because one of the, the the terms that I used when I was talking to Brennan about how I wanted the film to look in pre-production was warm and comforting yep. and soothing, very much in the yep. way that, you know, a cuddling session is supposed to soothe the client. 
I, I was trying yep. to go for trying to soothe the audience member. Yes. And my biggest goal was to make it feel like as an audience member, you were in that cuddle session as well, in a way, you know, feeling and maybe reaping some of those benefits too. <laughs> so. You did that. Exactly. That's what I was going to state. I felt a warmth. Um, thank you. Thank you. And that, I think that means a lot. A lot. Of of, I really appreciate hearing no, that. You, so. It came across. It really, it came across and I hope I don't want to, we don't want to give too much stuff away so people can have their own view, but, but they're going to, they're going to feel the warmth too. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I wanted to mention the music you used to me. I wrote down, it was both erotic and supporting of the shots. How did mm -hmm. you choose the music? Yeah. Well, a lot of it was, I, I really knew I wanted an original score. And what, what was really interesting is uh, because of our crowdsource campaign, uh, I actually had a lot of composers reach out to me and say, Hey, do you have music for this? Or I'd love to, to be um, considered to, to score this. And so I sifted through a lot of different composers okay. and I actually had a, a number of them do just kind of a very quick sample to a, to a clip, you know, and, uh, the, the composer we ended up going with, his name is Paco Periaggio. And, um, he is based, I'm pretty sure he's based, uh, out of Italy. Um, so he's not even in the States, but his sample was just totally nailed kind of the, the theme of, of cuddle buddies and, and the music that yeah. you hear at the very end as, you know, the credits are just starting to roll. Um, to me that felt so, so powerful. And, and when I first heard that and his sample, I went, that's great. I think there's, that's kind of maybe our theme there that, that he sort of weaves through the film when you, when you kind of listen to it. But, but I think it very much was hearing it and kind of realizing I did like this idea of it feeling soothing and, and a little bit ambient, but still having this emotional build, um, and a little bit of a, you know, a climax to the, to the, to the music when it crescendos, you know? Um, mm. so I think it, it sort of was just hearing that listening and, and, and just kind of knowing, okay, I think this is, this is the way we go. And then honestly, it did take a lot of finessing. I, I think I went through and, and I gave a lot of notes on shaping, especially in certain moments, you know, it was, I think it needs to kind of be this here. And, you know, and then it, it was that dialogue between Paco and I really trying to nail the music all throughout the film, you know? So uh, you did it. I mean, it, it just comes across and knowing how young you are, it's, it, it still doesn't fit. And here we are talking, <laughs> like, this you. young guy is doing this stuff, man. I mean, you, it found you, you found it. That's what you're supposed to be doing. Um, so Thank as you. we're getting towards the end of the show, what's next? You said you are working on something, right? What are you yeah, working on? So the, so the, my biggest goal now is, 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 um, you know, to be honest, when I first initially, when I first envisioned Cuddle Buddies, I I think you can kind of feel it. The joke I make is it feels like a like a feature in a short, you know, in a short skin. It does <laughs> um, it? Does yeah, it, yeah. And you, I think you can feel that because there's 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 a it's longer. It has this whole structure. There's a middle section where there's a montage. There's an opening and there's sort of a a closing. And I think I initially knew that I kind of in my verbose form of writing, I, I kind of just went, okay, well, I'm going to make a longer short and and that's what it's going to be. And it's going to be a standalone and, and that is what Cuddle Buddies will be. And that'll be the end of it. And, and so only later on, um, when I started showing the film around town and then even just getting 
people who started to come across it later, like, like yourself and, and just had such incredibly kind things to say about it, which I'm, I'm super grateful for. It started to really dawn on me that I, I, I wasn't done with this world and these characters yet, but I, I think I started to realize that as I was really looking toward, okay, now I think I'm really ready to start putting together my first feature as a writer director. What is that idea going to be? And I think it, it inevitably just ended up always coming back to, I think it has to be cuddle buddies. Cause I think that is going to be a stronger mark of my, my sensibilities, but I think it hopefully will be just a unique and, and different um, debut as a, you know, as a, as a feature director and writer. And so I think the more I showed it, the more people, and the other thing people kept asking me about is, you know, when, when it cuts to black, what happens next, you know, does without spoiling too much, it's like, what happens with the mother daughter situation? You know, Mm -hmm. what happens with the divorce situation? Those things are, are left not completely resolved at the end. And, and so I think that was one thing more people were kind of curious about knowing more about. And so I think that's when it dawned on me. I, I want to do the feature version of this. And so I actually just recently finished the the script draft. And I, I had already gone through a couple of drafts of cool. that, but it's finally at the place where I'm, I'm actually starting to try to send it out to producers, get financiers involved, attach talent, really start to put together the building blocks of um, an independent finance plan for this for this film. So the there goal is go. to try money. to make it and shoot it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the money part is always the thing you're you know you're yeah. you're looking for, especially as a first time feature director. So that's that's the big one. And then I have uh, a couple of other short films that are in post right now that I wrote and directed uh, since Cuddle Buddies that okay. are hopefully all coming out within the next um, couple months. You know, each one after each other in succession. So. Yeah, so been been staying uh, active and staying busy since then. <laughs> well, so. it certainly sounds. Like I'm on your newsletter, so I'll, I'll be getting sources on that. And about the cuddle oh, buddies thing, it depends on the timing. You know, with uh, the next presidential election come up, there's so much shit that we're going to be heading into. I think oh, yeah. <laughs> something like cuddling might be the timing might be good for people that say, "Hey, maybe I need this because of all the." all the mm-hmm. craziness that we're going to be going through soon. So I think, I, I think you got something there, man. I really do. Thank you. I, yeah, I, I really hope so too. And it's, it's um to kind of go off your point. I mean, I, even yesterday morning, I, I, I came across this, this Instagram uh, profile of this, this guy who was holding a sign and he just said, give me a hug if you are going oh. through anxiety or depression. And he had a blindfold oh, yeah. on him. I was shocked at how many people were coming up to him in this video and they, they were hugging him. And then some, some of the people who came up with, they just all of a sudden the floodgates opened and they, they just were sobbing because nobody else at the time seems to have been like there to, to hold them or comfort them. And, and it honestly, I sobbed, I cried like, like a baby when I saw, when I saw that video, cause it kind of dawned on me yet again, I think so often we are just going through our days, bottling up a lot, trying yep. to stay strong. And and yep. if you're never kind of releasing that and you're not having somebody to hold you and just listen, and sometimes it's all you need. You don't even have to have them talk to you. You just need them there to listen and hold you. And 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 once you 
let go of that, you, you always feel so much better and it's this catharsis. So I think very much so with, with kind of the division in our country, all these things going on where, you know, unfortunately I think people are primed to just want to engage in conflict and, and, and my goal with this film and with my art and hopefully just my, in my interactions with people is I would like to try to do the opposite. I would like to try to bring us together and, mm-hmm. and literally connect, so to speak. And, you know, exactly. this film very much is a, a, a great example of the coming together, but in, in, in the most literal way and in, in physical connection. So I think that that was something I kind of realized was a genuine interest of mine. And sometimes even just looking at the film in, in hindsight, I'm, I go, I guess I really just always have wanted to connect people, bring people together. And this is, this film is just another form of that, you know, just in an artistic yeah. capacity. Yeah. So. Well, here's one thing that I think will bring a smile to people's faces. <laughs> and the sound of the VW Beetle means it's time to shift gears as we head Amazing. to the ro- road trip roundup. Let's do uh, it. All right, man. Jordan. When road tripping, do you tend to do fast food or local diners? I try to do local diners. I really do. I'm, I'm a big okay. fan of trying to check out things that you are so unique to that place. So many people, I think, that listen to the show, I bet they're, they've been changing their ways. This show and asking <laughs> that question has changed my ways. Sue and Amazing. I, we're heading out today on a road trip for soccer, and we're going to be stopping. Oh All right, so, Amazing. Number two. What's your dream car for road trip? Could be something you grew up with, you know, like a station wagon or something you guys had, your parents had, or you have now, or maybe you'd uh, spend some money and and renting for a road trip. What's a dream car? I think uh, honestly for, um, for a road trip, that was more of a comfortable road trip car. I, I think I would, I would love something like a, like a, like a Land Rover or a Ford Bronco. There's kind of this new Ford Bronco or, um, a defender. I think the defender is made by Land Rover too, but to me, it's sort of that combo of, um, it's a sleek car, but it also is big enough to be comfortable. If you're road tripping, if it was just a solo road trip, I'd probably do a sportier, like a Porsche. (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, yeah, there you go. Or up down, (laughs) down the, uh, uh, coast outside of LA. All right. So you're a young guy. You probably don't even know what the first thing I'm going to mention is. What's the last cassette or CD that played while you're on a road trip? Hell, you're young Ooh. enough. If you want to mention some, your favorite station on Sirius, you go ahead. But um, uh, I think, okay, let's see. As far as, um, I could say cassette and then CD. The The last cassette I probably had was. Um, you even know honestly, about probably, that surprises. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Uh, this was like a while ago, but um, I had a cassette tape for. Uh, Britney Spears is hit me baby oh, one God. more time. Okay. You know, when she first was kind of coming out and, yeah, yeah. um, and I remember we would, we would play that and <laughs> I don't know why we had it, but yeah, we would play that and sometimes in the car. And then when, um, when they started kind of doing away with, you know, tape decks in the cars yeah. and then it just became like CDs and now a lot of cars don't even have that. Yeah. Um, but the CD, the last CD, I think I had, um, gosh, I think it was, it was probably this metal band called, I actually really love metal, which is funny because it sounds so like in opposition to the, the cuddling uh, <laughs> and the tone of that film. Um, but, but I, I, there's this metal band called asking Alexandria that, um, in high school is my favorite metal band. I guess it was partly just a catharsis of the, you know, the aggression of it. Yeah. Um, 
and being a young man. But but that album, I it's called Stand Up and Scream, was their first album, and that album just like blew me away. Um, I, mm. I must have played that so many times. The the lining on it, it, it yeah. got damaged and it actually skips now because I played it so many times <laughs> in my car. But yeah, but that was, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's our favorite stuff, man. Yeah, true. All right. Straight up question. Number four, Coke or Pepsi? Probably Coke. Yeah. Coke for okay. sure. Yeah. That's leading the way. I know it is. I don't officially yeah. <laughs> uh, write this stuff down, but I'm sure it's at least 70, 30. All yeah. right. Here's the big one. You take this wherever you want to go. Okay, Jordan. What's okay. your favorite road trip memory? Oh, good question. I think, uh, honestly, I think I, I took a road trip. I was a lot younger. I must have been probably 12 at the time, but I, I did this three-week road trip in an RV with my dad, um, Gregory Roman, who's listed in the credits, um, mm-hmm. my cousin, my grandfather, Jack Armistead, who is also listed in the credits, and then my uncle, uh, so all of us guys got into an oh. RV and we took a three week road trip. We started in Colorado. We went over to California and then we kind of went up the Pacific Northwest into Vancouver and kind of circled back cool. around, came back around, saw the Grand Canyon. And basically we went to, we went to like 20 different national parks, um, kind of just around that part of the country. Uh, we went to Yosemite, we went to Yellowstone um, wow. and it was such a fun trip. I mean, it wasn't without its um, blow ups, <laughs> you know. We definitely yeah. had some some uh, some scraps in there in between. But but I think just the memory of of traveling for that long, being on the road, seeing yeah. so many parts of the country with my family, um, and it was you know just a a guy's trip to the to the max, you know. But I think that was such a fun, memorable road trip because of how in depth it was and how long it was. It was definitely the longest road trip I've You taken. learned a lot about being a male and a lot of other things on trips like that, man. That is true. Yeah. That's really some good <laughs> stuff. Sure. That's some good stuff. Hey, we're wrapping yeah. up, but um, I want us to stay on for a minute after, after we clear off. I just want to tell our listeners, challenge, chillax everybody and keep listening to life's a road trip. Thanks for listening. Check out previous episodes with new ones dropping each Tuesday. If you don't see a synopsis of this show where you're listening, visit our website at lifesaroadtrip.podbean.com for more information on this week's guest. This is your host, Scott Martin, reminding you that life's a road trip.